Welcome to another episode of the Indoor Environment Show. I'm Bob Krell, uh, founder and publisher of uh, Healthy Indoors Media. Yeah, I, I remember where I'm from now. And joined <laughs> us as, as usual by my co-host, Mr. Don Weeks, uh, coming live from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. He is the president of the IEQGA, the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance. Hi, Don. Good to see you as always. Hi, Bob. How are you? Everything going well? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, after stumbling through my own name and introduction, yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm excited about this show. It, it, these are two friends of mine, uh, colleagues, and uh, I think we'll uh, we'll get to have a good discussion today. Before we get started, though, I want to remind uh, everyone to mention that the IQ Radio Show that the guests will be Jim Rosenfall to discuss air cleaning, filtration, and the Corsi. Uh, Rosenfall box, and that's going to be broadcast at the same time we're broadcasting this particular one. But you can catch both of these shows on the podcasts and audio casts, uh, webcasts after the show's end. Yep, and they're actually uh, where, where you're watching us now. If you are on the uh, Healthy Indoors Online Global Community, uh, IQ Radio is also there too on a separate separate uh, channel. So we've got that all there, so you can watch all the all all of these wonderful shows, uh, both live and after. Yes, great. So let me introduce our two guests today. Uh, first is uh, Max Sherman. Max attended uh, UCLA for a degree in, uh, in, B in BS in physics and chemistry. He also attended UC Berkeley and received a PhD in physics. He's currently the owner and principal uh, consultant at EPD Consulting Group, where he provides expert services to clients regarding HVAC indoor air quality and building science. Max also works as a, retire, as a re rehired retiree at, at uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratories. Hello, Max. Howdy, how is everybody today? Good, good, Wonderful. good. And uh, your, your other uh, guest today is Bill Bonfleck. Uh, Bill started his university education at the University of Illinois at Urba, Urba, Urbana campaign uh, Champaign, with a, boy, I messed that one up, with, yeah, a, a, with, with a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineer. At the same university, which I will not repeat, he received a, a master's degree and a PhD in mechanical engineering. He also earned a degree in music at the university, which I find very fascinating. Currently, uh, he, uh, Bill is a, at Penn State as a professor of architectural engineering, and previously, Bill was the director of Indoor Environmental Cent uh, Center at Penn State. Good morning or good day, uh, Bill. Yep, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you both here too. So today we're going to focus in on um, the new standard of uh, 241, uh, which uh, is entitled Control of Infectious uh, Aerosols. Um, so just to get us started, Bill, what uh, what did you, how did you get into the position? You were, cho you were chosen the clear chair to committee to develop 241 and you selected Bill, uh, Max as his, uh, as his vice chair. And of course, we all know, having seen many uh, headlines on this, this was in a record-breaking timeline of approximately six months from December 2022 to June 2023. From your perspective as leaders of this project committee, what was, what, why was it necessary to fast-track this standard? Yeah, well, ultimately, the reason that it was fast-tracked was because the White House COVID uh, response team asked for it. So Ashish Jha, uh, after a lot of preliminaries we don't have time to go through, uh, uh, decided that what really needed to be done was to have a national uh, pathogen control standard, and ASHRAE was best positioned to do that. So 
uh, Ja came to the ASHRAE leadership to Farouk Mabou uh, in November and um, said, we'd really like you to do this. And yeah, could you do it by March? Because they, they wanted a standard by the time the COVID restrictions ended. And uh, we said, not quite that fast, but we'll, we'll do it by June. So that was really the driver for not doing this uh, by the normal standards process, which would we'd probably be working on it for another year or two before we, we issued the, the first version. Um, but I have to say, I'm not sure we would have developed a standard at all. We might not have even started uh, by this point if it wasn't for that. So the, the push was, was a, a good thing, although it also uh, created some uh, uh, consequences that we're going to have to deal with as we go downstream. And we'll talk about those uh, perhaps a little later. Um, how is, the, besides uh, Max as your vice chair, how is the other members of the committee selected? Well, of course, we, we had to look at um, the expertise that it would take to put together a standard like this, expertise in, uh, in, in risk assessment and in, in public health and in air distribution and in uh, commissioning uh, because of the, the need to uh, assess facilities and, and implement. So that was one aspect of it. We also needed to have a team that, that we really believed could get it done that quickly. And, and so uh, I looked uh, a lot to members of the epidemic task force that I also chaired who'd been very productive uh, when, when we put together this roster. And Max was, was one of those. He, he chaired the uh, residential team on, on the epidemic task force. And he has a very uh, long and deep experience with standards. And I, I thought that uh, the combination of his technical background and his standards experience would make him uh, an ideal uh, whip, if you will, to help us get this standard put together in, in the, the required time frame. And it proved to be true. Yeah, I mean, how as many, far, as, how far many as your ability to get it in that amount of time, it, it's, it's, it's astonishing, to be honest, you know, because with the way that uh, standards development typically happens in this industry. This was this was breakneck speed. You know, we, we did what we called, or at least what I called, the Tiger Team approach, which if you remember, was what they did after the ill-fated Apollo 13, where we put together teams and said, okay, we have to get something done by this time. Failure is not an option. We're going to get it done. We can't do the usual standards thing of making everything perfect. So uh, that's what we did. Basically, everybody worked really hard, sometimes two meetings a week in each group in order to get what we needed to get done on time and in an acceptable way. You know, I think just to expand on that point a little bit, uh, yes, we weren't going to get everything perfect. I think in general, if we didn't think something was, was well enough formed to be in the standard at this point, we left it out. So I think, think you know, that's some of the, the things we need to do in the future is, is add some things back in and enhance some things that are perhaps treated a little lightly in this version. Yeah, I think that's going to be the case. Uh, my understanding, and, and you can correct me if it's, uh, I should know this, but basically the 241 uh, committee will be meeting on a regular basis to go over uh, things that are going to come in either uh, from other members uh, or from somebody outside the, the um the group to discuss, comment, question these various uh, sections of the standard. Well, we're basically and, going back under normal ASHRAE procedures, ANSI procedures, and then Max is a, a whiz on those. So maybe he could fill in some of the details about what, what will be different going forward. 
Right. So um, we broke all the rules. Well, not all of them, but we broke many of the rules of ANSI in order to get this out uh, in this breakneck speed. So it is an ASHRAE standard, but it is not an ANSI standard. And one of our jobs is to make it an ANSI standard. That means we have to go back and put out the entire standard for a full public review and do all the normal public review things that we have to do. Uh, along with that, we'll be fixing things that we find or including things that, that come up to make it better. So uh, although we got the ASHRAE standard out in four months, it's still another couple of years probably before it will fully get its ANSI designation. And, and anybody who wants to put in a continuous maintenance proposal or uh, uh, ask for an interpretation, that can be done right now. And we, we have, I, I guess, at, uh, at least a dozen, maybe close to 20 uh, CMPs that have already come in. Uh, and to make sure we know, everybody knows what the what these acronym means, CMP stands for? Continuous Maintenance Proposal. And That's there is a- Propose a change to the, to the standard. You can do that through the ASHRAE website and the comment database there. Okay, and uh, we can uh, post that perhaps uh, as part of the this program, uh, where that is, because I'm, I'm not sure everybody knows where that is in, within the ASHRAE uh, website. Sure. Uh, good, all right. So Max, let's start with you on, on, on the next question. What, what, what is in your mind uh, the three most important sections of the standard? Well, as Bill said, I'm an old standards guy. And so the most important part of any standard is its title, purpose, and scope. That is, that's what tells everybody what to expect from the standard. That's what says what is included and what isn't included. And in the title, purpose, and scope of, of this standard, the, we, we see some key terms that come to define the standard. Um, infection reduction management mode, um, equivalent clean air, uh, air cleaning, a whole bunch of things that really make up the standard are talked about there and that's where the important stuff is. Now, to the non-standard geeks, it's often the table of rates is the most important thing. If you ask any normal person what the most important thing of the 62 standard is, then uh, you, you will, they'll tell you, oh, well, that's the table of rates that I have to meet. But in some ways, that's the end product and not necessarily the most important part of the thing. Uh, from a practical standpoint, there are uh, other parts of the, that are important. And I think Bill likes to talk about those. Well, you know, I think, uh, yeah, once you get past the, the basic, what is the standard about, then there's the, the technical content. And, and in this standard, we have a number of sections that I would say deal with with requirements and then others that deal with, with how to decide how to implement them. So as Max has touched on, I think uh, obviously equivalent clean air is, is one of the, the top requirements. Uh, the, the requirements that deal with uh, testing of air cleaners also critically important because that all rolls into the, the concept of, of equivalent clean air to, uh, to meet the requirements of the standard. And I think a, an important section that, that isn't really uh, to the point of being highly important yet is going to be the one on air distribution because we know there are a lot of, of uh, factors that affect the performance of systems to control infectious aerosols that have to do with air distribution and that's more lightly developed. Um, the, the stuff on implementation, of course, is also very important, but uh, maybe more straightforward and more like what you might have seen in other uh, existing standards for commissioning. 
Well, I wondered, basically, I use that as a sort of a generalized question, three most important sections, but there's really no section I can honestly say is not important <laughs> in some regards. Every one of the sections, including some of the appendices, are, are critical in this regard. So let's uh, let's take another way of looking at this. Is there sections built which of the standard which require additional work, and why? Um, sure. Well, we we could you know kind of tick through them. The the, the risk uh, assessment process that led to the table of uh, equivalent clean airflow requirements was based on really one set of assumptions. So I, I think there's uh, some scope there to. Uh, revisit that and, and and look at perhaps a more flexible uh, approach because that's really critical. Uh, the the air distribution part of it, uh, we just weren't ready to say what the requirements should be for certain things. So there's a uh, an intent to go there and look at um, ventilation effectiveness essentially and and putting in better requirements as to to what to do about the airflow and We've kind of pushed the market, I would say, on, on air cleaner standards. Uh, we're, we're actually a little bit out ahead of some standards in development. So I, I think that, that that's going to continue to change as more good test procedures uh, get published for the laboratory piece of it. And we need to work on scaling. So how do you go from a lab to a, an actual installation? So that, that's my view. And maybe Max has other things to add here as well. Well, I think there's, uh, it's not a finished standard, of course, but perhaps no standard is, is actually finished. So uh, users will inform us of what things we need to, to look at in more detail. As we look at some of the other sections, the appendix and other definitions, we'll see that we made certain uh, decisions uh, that might be limiting at the moment because we didn't know how to make them broader. We'll have to definitely make them broader. Uh, it's an ongoing process. No standard is ever actually done. So, I wanted to point out, uh, actually, uh, Bill had put in, in the uh, notes for us uh, that there is, uh, for the continuing maintenance, uh, there is a uh, website link that you can go to. We'll put that in the show notes uh, so you'll be able to get to this directly later. Just wanted to point that out. Yes. Um, one of the things you mentioned, Bill, was risk assessment. Uh, now that has different meanings in different professions. In, in my industrial hygiene profession, we we basically deal with with risk assessment in terms of evaluating whether something is airborne, whether it's at a certain concentration above the threshold limit value, things of that nature. But I don't think that's what exactly it means in uh, in this particular standard. Am I correct about that? Yeah. In, in this context, we're talking about how do you uh, quantify the probability of infection so that you can specify uh, an equivalent clean airflow rate that will limit that probability to what you consider to be acceptable. So uh, this was an, an analytical process where we had to, uh, for the space types that were covered, uh, make assumptions about things like uh, the number of occupants and the, uh, the occupant density and uh, what is the pathogen, because you have to assume the, the characteristics of the pathogen uh, how long does it stay active and uh, how is it distributed in, in the aerosol? So that affects uh, deposition, all of those sorts of, of uh, parameters. But we, we had to, to, to make a lot of choices that were pretty specific. And, and I think we should, should uh, consider broadening those. 
Yeah, I wanted to point out like equivalent air change can be that's kind of a complex area, right? Because when you're dealing with particulate as opposed to gaseous contaminants, most of the air cleaning technology that we see out there is we're seeing is really dealing with particulate for the most part, the portable equipment. It's HEPA. I mean, there may be some impregnated carbon filtration, but it's not really, you know, a, a true sorbent. So I, and I think that's for the general public. I think that's that's a challenging thing because they I, I think many of them think that these air cleaners also are, uh, you know, a surrogate to ventilation. Well, to some aspect of ventilation, and this is the whole thing with performance based air quality control. And instead of just throwing outdoor air at the contaminants and, and hoping we're getting all of them down to reasonable levels, we're trying to identify which are the, the key ones and, and controlling those. And actually, Max has been involved in some really interesting harm based research that he might want to mention here in that context. Sure. Uh, you know, why do we ventilate? Uh, you know, Andy personally used to say we ventilate for no particular reason, but we really ventilate for indoor air quality. But what's indoor air quality? That means controlling specific contaminants. Now, 241 is limited to infectious aerosols. Um, it doesn't care about gaseous contaminants. Um, you can have um, an equivalent clean air is just a number that tells us what dilution of the contaminant are you getting and how is it equivalent to uh, as if you had pure clean air, remembering that outdoor air isn't necessarily clean um, to, to start with. So in 241, the concept of equivalent clean air is a key concept. Uh, we've defined it as being the ability to dilute um, the pathogen of concern, whether by removing it whether by filtering it, whether by inactivating it, it doesn't really matter. What matters is there's less of it in the air. And that's what we're talking about. That could be applied to any other contaminant as well. You could have equivalent clean air in terms of a particular VOC or in terms of a particulates, which would be very close to CADR as it's commonly uh, known. But that's what equivalent clean air is. Yeah, so it's a simple example. Uh, we uh, estimate, and it's in a table in the standard, that a, a MERV-13 filter removes 77% of the uh, infectious aerosol going through it. And, and so in, in uh, equivalent clean air terms, if you had 100 actual CFM of air going through that filter, we would say that that was, was equivalent to 77 CFM of, of equivalent clean air. It's very much like CADR. And, and from 241 point of view, it uh, filtered air and outdoor air that has are the same. We don't really care how you got the pathogen out of the air. And, and maybe that's that's a you know a place to make the important point that this is not a new indoor air quality standard. It doesn't replace any of the standards we're used to following. So that the prerequisite for for 241 is that you comply with whatever. Uh, base standard for acceptable indoor air quality you're already following. And that would be, at least initially, the 241 uh, would be uh, requirement is that you, you comply with 62.1 for commercial buildings, 62.2 for residential buildings, and I think it's at 170. I, I, I get sometimes. Yeah. Now, how does, you know, do, is that a best starting point for most people is to start with trying to comply with those particular standards before they try to tackle 241? 
Well, if you can't get basic uh, in acceptable indoor air, then um, you're probably already starting off in the wrong place to, to begin with. So you can't comply with 241 without complying with a base standard. Now, if you're in some other country and you have some other base standard for IAQ, that's okay too. But yeah. the idea is you have to be, you have to use a base standard for IAQ. And then there may be, doesn't, additional requirements in order to meet 241. And 241, remember, is a resiliency standard. It's not supposed to be run at that rate all the time. It's only when it's determined that you need to run it in IRMM. And we're going to get to that in a second, because that is my next question, really. But basically, just to make sure we're, we're, we've wrapped up the, that whole equivalent airflow rate or ECA how is that calculated and how did, what does it provide to the building management and mechanical engineers in evaluation of the building? Max, you want to start on that one? Well, so it's, it's calculated through section five. There's a table that tells you how much uh, ECA per person um, is required in a certain space. Now, you can meet that by upping the ECA uh, or you can meet that by lowering the number of people in the space. That's up to your, your plan on how you intend to comply. But that's the number that's there. Uh, it could be as simple as upgrading your know, filters in an existing um, system. Uh, it could be portable air cleaners. It could be UV. It could be more outdoor air. There's all sorts of ways to meet it. But that's that's what the engineer has to do is figure out the most cost-effective way to meet that in, in their particular environment. Okay. Uh, Bill, you have anything to follow up on that? Uh, only to say that I'd add that uh, they're in terms of uh, equivalent clean air per person because that's actually uh, what personal risk is proportional to in, in, in the risk analysis is uh, it was done for the standard. We're assuming that the uh, probability of an infector being present is, is a, a function of how many people are there and what the community incidence rate is. And you can show that that the uh, the airflow per person uh, is is what's important, and, and there's really uh, no direct relevance to uh, to air change rates, unfortunately, because they're so widely used as the uh, the standard for infection control. Well, that that brings up a point: is that uh, you have ACH uh, air changes per hour, which many people, in, particularly in the health and safety field, are familiar with. You've now gone to CADR in many cases, uh, and now we're going to the ECA. Uh, uh, basically, is it is it we're jumping over CADR, or is that part of the whole uh, control system as well? well the CADR is uh, equivalent clean airflow. It's just the the name that AHAM gives to uh, to the the metric that's produced by their test, but they're really essentially the same thing. The CADR okay. is is the ECA it's used more for, and it's, it's used more for instrumentation, I believe. Is that correct? CADR, you mentioned a AHAM. Well, so it, it, it's, a, it's a portable air cleaner rating standard. Okay. Yeah. So it's for portable air cleaners, which brings me to the point that I think uh, you had talked about, Bill, and I think maybe Max as well. What, what's new in this particular standard with regards to um, uh, air cleaners? As opposed to previous ASHRAE standards. Well, um, well, let me first add that uh, CADR is a concept that was well known before AHAM uh, made a standard out of it. It's mm -hmm. simply a way of um, showing how much for the contaminant of concern, which for them is particles, 
uh, you you get dilution. So it's a it's kind of a filter efficiency times an airflow is what CADR is, and it can be used directly uh, to turn into part of ECA. So it's it's pretty straightforward. Um, now, in terms of what um, more more general EC, uh, air cleaners, uh, we have a whole set of standards of which CADR is one of them. But uh, there are other kinds of air cleaners to use. But one of the key things that we did in um, 241 is to write a backup uh, standard for ECA. That is, uh, in the appendix of 241, we have a standard that you can follow if there is no other standard for the technology that you want to use. And that's one of the key things that we um, added. And what what uh, what appendix is that? Is that a, a normative? Appendix A of, uh, appendix? of, two, of 241. And is that, I believe the terminology is normative? It's uh, normative because if you, uh, you need to use it if you want to qualify uh, your technology and the technology is not otherwise got a standard associated with it. Understood. Bill, you had a, a comment to make? Um, I, okay, I, that's I fine. Sure did. I just can't remember what it was now. <laughs> <laughs> that happens. All right, so let's-, oh, let's I know what I was gonna say, that most sure. of the, the gaps have to do with air cleaner types that work by putting some kind of agent into the, the space. So you can think of a number of them to produce reactive species. And also if you do UV, in a, a space, the, the standards for that were kind of lacking. Some were in development and they just weren't published yet. Unfortunately, you can't reference in one standard another one that hasn't actually been approved for publication. So we were filling a gap until some of these other projects get completed. Right, yeah, that, that's important to keep in mind that many of the um, standards that are being developed are developing at not warp speed, but basically on normal uh, uh, committee speed, which usually is something of, an, of a two, or in some cases, three-year cycle in terms of these types of standards. Um, so it's a, this one is completely different than all of, that, of those, that's for sure. Um, so let's talk about another terminology, infection re risk management mode, or IRMM. How is it? A, how is it determined that a building should implement IRMM? Well, uh, it isn't in our standard, uh, and that's a key key part of it. IRMM is when you turn on the features of this standard, but we don't say when to do that because that's going to be perhaps a public health decision. When the public health people say, "Okay, you need to um, make your building more resilient," could be an owner decision. Uh, you know, this is flu season. I, I want to make my building a little bit more. But we don't know, we meaning ASHRAE, don't know when the time is right to, to do this. So we leave it up to the authorities having jurisdiction, which for an epidemic are mostly going to be public health officials, uh, to do that. And, and I think there's precedent for that. I mean, if we, we think back to the beginning of the COVID pandemic, uh, public uh, health authorities told us uh, when we needed to wear masks. So they even closed down businesses. In some cases, they reduced occupancy. So I, I think that uh, this is really an opportunity for uh, building science and public health to work together. A lot of people have been saying lately that, oh, building should be treated as a public health tool. Well, if we're gonna do that, then public health needs to get involved. And they're, they're looking at the data. Uh, is uh, a particular type of, uh, of disease increasing. We, we now know that they can do wastewater testing that's a leading indicator. So I, I think there are ways in which the authorities could get involved 
But as Max said, could be an owner decision, could be an occupant decision. If I've got an air cleaner in my office and that's that's how I'm meeting the standard, I can decide to turn it on. No, it could be is in that particular circumstances, it's almost down to an office by office basis, uh, if you look at it that way. There's a lot of flexibility in the standard. It can be everything from central systems to, to room by room solutions. I think public health is a good entity to, to work with, and there's no doubt about it. Uh, they need to make their, their decisions on terms of this. I'm just not sure they necessarily know what IRMM is at this point. Um, and how, we, how would we communicate that to them? Well, it's a period where, where risk of airborne disease transmission is sufficiently high that additional protections above normal indoor air quality control should be implemented. That, that's really what it comes down to. Um, just like you should wear a mask is, is an example of the same thing, but people don't want to wear a mask. So what the standard is trying to do is to, to postpone the, the, the time when the authorities say, well, now you have to wear a mask or you, you can't come into this building at all. And it's important to add that 241 doesn't address the short range uh, protection issues that uh, personal protective equipments like a mask does. It's not going to stop somebody from coughing on you and you inhaling it. It's all about what happens in the larger space, in the air that's mixed and distributed from person to person. Which is not to say that it doesn't have some effect on close range, but we, we did not, could not take into account things like droplet spray transmission in, in a one meter radius in, in the, the calculations that we did. Well, yeah, and there's I, not going to be many measures that are going to be able to protect you from that other than personal protective equipment when you're at that point. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, I could see, I could foresee under the, the circumstances where uh, one building owner decides that they're going to implement IRMM and, and the building next to it is not uh, for whatever reason. Uh, I guess that becomes a public health issue is, again, isn't it really? They have to communicate successfully to show that there is a need, or in some cases, there isn't a need to do the IRMM um, calculations. Yeah, it's your choice. Uh, I mean, we, when we saw that during the pandemic, some you know, private school might do something that the public school uh, didn't do. And uh, maybe people don't, don't think of this, but many large corporations have people who are looking at uh, the... Uh, disease statistics within their companies, if they're worldwide and have lots of locations, there are, are experts within some of these businesses that would be qualified to make decisions about when they needed to do something to increase the level of protection. I agree. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes that comes down to the health and safety officer. And I'm not necessarily sure at the health and safety officers in many of these locations and uh, this, you know, uh, large corporations are necessarily qualified to, to make a judgment as to whether something is uh, should go under IRMM or not. And that, that's probably true, but they can probably judge better than we can here sitting today tell them when to do it. Sure, well, I agree. That's let me add that I, I view this, this standard, um, even in its current state, as, as being kind of a, a provocation and an agent for change. I, I think that, that there are a lot of ways in which this standard uh, provokes uh, many thoughts about things we could do differently with our other IAQ standards and in, in this connection with uh, with public health. 
Is it fair to assume that that was one of the at least underlying motivations on the the speed that you drafted it and and just just the way that you drafted the document? Well, we want to take care uh, take advantage of this moment of opportunity. You know, whether the we it was critical to meet the White House's schedule, I think there's still uh, value to getting it out while everyone is thinking about indoor air quality and the consequences of poor indoor air quality because I think it's getting a the ideas here are getting a broader hearing than they would have if we'd waited three years to put something out. Absolutely. Yeah, I can't yeah, I mean, think of a, of a time in my career where IAQ was more at the forefront of the public's knowledge than because of COVID. I would agree. And I mean, yeah. we, you get these uh, mass uh, media broadcasts as well. I believe uh, one of our uh, colleagues, uh, Joseph Allen and, and uh, Lindsay uh, Moore are going to be on, we're on, I think, on uh, 60 Minutes this past this past week, I don't think they either one of them would have been uh, called to, to speak in, on a forum of that nature unless there was an outcry for, uh, for better indoor air quality than we have currently, without a doubt. I mean, it's definitely so, a unique opportunity we're in right now, but it's also we have to seize the moment as 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 an industry, right? Because we will not have this critical point in time again where there is a public awareness, I think, globally about indoor environmental issues, it's certainly not to this extent. And, uh, you know, I think it behooves us all in the industry to drive this as hard as we can at this point. And the, the standards for air cleaners, I think, again, you know, that's something that, you know, maybe is painful to, to you know, try to comply with them and, and to get standards written that are going to be effective. But really, those kinds of, of um, code enforceable standards that can give you confidence in, in what a technology is doing. I think are really critical to uh, to the long-term success of this approach. And I think 241 has the benefit of sort of the contrapositive of what we just talked about, and that is it allows one to define what's a safe and effective mechanism, which helps exclude those which are not, because we all know during a crisis there are people who try to jump in, well-meaning or otherwise, to, to fill the gap, and they're not always doing it correctly. Correct, yeah. Uh, Max, a follow-up to the um, IRMM. Uh, I'm wondering, do you anticipate that this will be something that will be implemented in residential buildings as well? Uh, I, I don't know that it would become a code uh, in residential buildings, but I could see that builders and developers might wish to uh, take credit for it and saying it's 241 compliant. It may not be that expensive to do in, in new construction. I can also see it being useful in multifamily. If you're if you're talking about a high-rise multifamily building, people might be willing to pay more rent to be in one that has protections against future epidemics rather than being exposed to uh, to their neighbors. So I, I see those levels of it being used in residential. Uh, I can see individual homeowners uh, wanting to upgrade uh, their home to to be that, but I don't see it as as regulation. Okay, that's fair. Um, Bill, can you kind of give us some uh, idea what the uh, biz building readiness plans? It seems like that's a new requirement for many building operators. I may be wrong, but what can you what do you expect, expect to be included in a in a business readiness plan? A, a building readiness plan is actually uh, a, a term that was coined by the Epidemic Task Force, and mm -hmm. you know, this was. The, the work product of, of our commissioning and, and testing and balancing experts on the committee. And, and essentially it, uh, it starts if you have an existing building with a thorough 
assessment of, of all of the systems that may have an impact on IAQ. So you, you go through the whole mechanical system. Uh, components, controls, control sequences uh, are things adjusted correctly and determine what the maintenance items are. And uh, you assess what is the equivalent clean air delivery that the systems are providing as they are. And then you calculate the um, the, the target you're supposed to meet according to section five based on the requirements. And if there's a, a difference there, if there's a deficit, then you go through the exercise of, of doing an engineering study essentially to determine what the best option is. And at the end of all of that, you document everything in this building readiness plan. So it tells you that clearly what you have and what needs to be fixed and what you're going to do to implement infection risk management mode. So it becomes the, the basic documentation of um, airborne infection control systems for the building and it should reside there in the building in current form for use by the facility staff uh, ever after. So that, that's really all it is, is the, um, the documentation of the assessment and, and planning for a particular building. And if you go down the you know, the line to, to say uh, single family residences, obviously you don't need to produce a building readiness plan for your, your single family home, but the, the concepts are there of, of thinking through that process and, and uh, deciding what to do so that it's done in advance. I think this is one of the important things um, that we're, we're now more than three years into the pandemic and a lot of facilities are still trying to figure out what to do. If they had all had plans in place, all they would have done was implement implement them by by changing control modes right sometimes all you need to do is the plan that is you may have all the capacity in a given building to meet the requirements and all you have to do is go through the planning and write it down to say that when uh, irmm is triggered go out and do these things so there there can be almost zero uh, cost to uh, implementing 241 depending on the building Right. Now, this building building readiness plans, I, I agree that, they, that an assessment of the building needs to be done. Who, Bill or Max, who do you expect will be doing those type of assessments? What what uh, professional um, credentials might they need or want to have somebody do an assessment of that nature? Well, I, you know, I would say go, it might be interesting to go back and look at what's in the building readiness section of the epidemic task force um, documentation, because they talk there about what a team uh, should be to do a, a building readiness plan. So it, it's really kind of multidisciplinary, but I, I think um, uh, commissioning uh, specialists, technicians or, or engineers and, and uh, test and balance contractors are part of a uh, facilities staff. Owners should be involved and perhaps just the, the professionals that generally deal with the HVAC for a building. So it, it's kind of a a broad team so you get all of the, the necessary angles on what needs to go into this planning process. ASHRAE standards don't in general tell you who has to do something, only what has to be done. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've done here. But uh, we have always envisioned that there could be guidance documents that help uh, suggest ways in which things could be done for the future. And that's kind of one of the many activities on our eventual to-do list. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's important to have that, really, because I think there's going to be a lot of people, uh, some well-meaning, some just out to make a buck, who are going to claim that they, they know how to do building readiness plans better than anybody else for a, for a cheaper price. And I think, I think having a guide will probably be very helpful for people who want to pick out 
somebody to do this type of work. So I'm yeah, so, all for it. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. You really do need to, you know, there needs to be some guidance as to what the requisite qualifications of the team should be. You know, that, that, that's pretty important. Well, you know, there are a lot of state laws that are, are under consideration and model air quality laws. Johns Hopkins published a model air quality law, but there are actually uh, maybe almost mm -hmm. 10 states now that are considering some kinds of bills. And those generally do address qualifications of, of people who will do this assessment and, uh, and planning work. Right. Yeah, I've, I've seen that uh, model plan. It, it is it uh, was discussed this week at the AIHA's IQ committee. So it, it's beginning uh, some resonance at this point. People are really interested in figuring out who's going to do these types of assessments because they're obviously thousands, if not millions of buildings that could potentially want to have a building readiness plan as part of their um, maintenance operation maintenance uh, program. So it'd be interesting to see how that develops. I was wondering, uh, we've pretty much already touched on this, but I, I want to give Max another chance to kind of explain what is the process for continuing maintenance, uh, particularly for this particular committee. I understand from Bill that we already have a standard, we have about 12 new, new uh, questions or comments coming in. How, do, how does the committee intend to um, um, in, you know, interact with the people making these comments and questions? What, what is the process? How does, it, how does somebody get involved in that? Okay, so it's the standard is under continuous maintenance in the regular way ASHRAE does things. That means that anybody can submit a continuous maintenance proposal and the committee has to review it um, in, a, in a relatively timely manner and decide whether they want to put it out as an actual proposed change, whether they don't like it at all and want to throw it out, or whether they want to consider something like it um, down the road. So anybody who sees uh, uh, an error or what something could be improved can write a specific change. And a specific change means um, not just, uh, I think you should write more on XYZ. It kind of means uh, add this text or change this text or mm -hmm. delete this or something specific that the committee can actually um, vote on. Now, that's the normal process. That's what we'll be doing. But as I said before, we also have to um, reopen the whole standard eventually as an ANSI standard. And that means that there will be a full public review of the entire standard at some time in the future. And people can respond to that when it happens by um, writing comments on any particular piece that they like. Yeah, I think that the key in that is that it has to be specific in terms of language. I think a lot of people think that if, well, you didn't cover this particular topic, we'll get you to respond in some way. Actual fact, it has to be very specific as to what the change is in language or, or you know, the calculation is not exactly right. It, if you don't give something specific, I don't, in most cases, having served on 62.1, you pretty much get rejected or, or turned back if, unless you have something very specific in terms of changes. Yeah, that's right. If you if you say something very general, the committee only has to respond very general, like, uh, no, thank you. We don't think so. <laughs> or, uh, yeah, we're considering that, but we're not doing anything about it right now. You know? you, you right. Need, yeah, be specific and have a persuasive argument, both. Right, right. It has to have not only the statement as to what the change may be, but it has to have, as you say, a persuasive argument as to why that change is really critical to be made in that regard. Uh, so that's important to keep in mind because I think a lot of people are going to be, particularly when you get to the ANSI, uh, you know, process, you're going to have a lot of comments. And I know Max and 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 Bill, 
shall we say you both have a, a slightly different viewpoint on whether or not to go forward with ANSI or whether you think it's something we should be doing at this point. So well, Bill, you... Max is antsier about going forward than I am. <laughs> oh, oh, I think, uh, well Nancy, we, uh, that was actually a Claire Ramsbeck joke for those who remember her. But um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think we need to get there. I think we we just discuss: is this something we we should start today or six months from now? Or, uh, but, but I, I agree that ultimately the standard needs to be answered before <laughs> uh, We had hoped that it wouldn't be necessary that uh, sixty-two. 172170 would basically adopt their own versions of it and we wouldn't need a 241. Uh, that seems from a practical standpoint that is simply not going to, to happen that way for all sorts of reasons. So we're going to have to go forward uh, with, with doing that. And the question is about the timing. And uh, we have to, whatever, we can make changes right now to the ASHRAE standard 241 if we wish to, but no matter what we do or don't do, we have to put out the whole thing all over again uh, uh, when we do the ANSI review. So the most effective time to do that is not exactly clear. That's something that the committee is going to discuss amongst itself. Yeah, okay. Max is more pessimistic than I am about you know, eventually changing 62.1 and 62.2, but I, I'm not optimistic that that will happen anytime soon. Right. Having served on 62.1, I know Max served on 62.2. Bill, you may have served on one of these standard setting groups other than 241 as well. The process, it is continuous maintenance and it, it is brought up on a regular basis, but it can take time. It's, it's not going to happen next week. Uh, also, uh, it's important to point out that 241 includes uh, both new and existing buildings. Um, 621 doesn't include uh, existing buildings. Right. So there's a bit of an overlap in, in scope. So what, do you, what standard would uh, do existing commercial buildings? And uh, it's not clear that there's one to use at the moment. So it's those kind of problems that have to be worked through. Well, I mean, the, the, as, as a design standard, yes, but, you know, interestingly, there's a quite well-developed maintenance requirement in, in 62.1 that the problem is that, that uh, nobody adopts that to enforce it. What comes out of 62.1 and goes into the code are design requirements, not operating requirements. And that's another big issue that I think we need to support better air quality is some reasonable level of, of regulation of, of uh, buildings in operation, which has been coming along for some time for um, energy. Yeah, that, that that is a, I mean, one of the things that is going on in parallel with this is the whole um, decarbonization of, of uh, buildings. And uh, how do you in see the interaction of that particular uh, exercise that's going on right now in many buildings and perhaps putting together something for 241. Do you see some kind of parallels between the two? I, I would say not too many because uh, we don't intend to be operating IRMM very often. So the energy impacts are generally pretty, pretty small. If for some reason you wanted a building to operate in that mode all the time, then you, you might uh, seriously consider the most energy efficient ways to do that. But um, this is an indoor air quality type standard. That is, it's a health and safety standard, uh, and it doesn't directly have a lot of uh, energy impact. So I don't see a huge overlap. 
Okay. But I would say that there's, you know, an indirect influence on 241 is, it, you know, if we weren't concerned about how much energy was was involved in in these higher levels of uh, airborne infection risk um, reduction, then maybe you, you could operate that way all the time. But one of the things that we've been dealing with uh, continuously since COVID started was potential was concern about about increased energy use and increased carbon emission. So it, it, it is reacting to that uh, to some extent. Well, there are other reasons to only uh, invoke what's in 241 when it's really needed. Mm-hmm. One of the things I noted that is in this is uh, new standard is the equivalent outdoor air calculator. And I, I believe this is an updated one from the one that was provided by the ASHRAE ETF. Is there differences between the ETF version and the one in, in standard 241? Well, yes, we call it the equivalent clean air calculator in 241, and it was the equivalent outdoor air calculator in, in the ETF. So that's 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 one change, but it mainly just updated. The same updated. Thing, spreadsheet helper that will get you to what does this combination of of controls get me for ECAI? That wasn't a term that existed uh, prior to, to 241. So those are the kinds of changes we've seen so far. So this calculator is a is a um, like an Excel sheet uh, calculator type thing, and it allows you to take the, what you have in terms of measurements and convert it into ECI, ECA. I mean, yeah, me- measurements, or even just uh, you can you can choose a different filter. Um, for for a system, it could be used to to look at a system that uh, in a building that hasn't been constructed yet. Well, that would be helpful, wouldn't it? In some ways, you have it as uh, even before the building is is up and running, you can calculate this and figure out exactly what you need in way of ventilation and yeah. filters and things like that. You enter all the basic relevant data: the population, the the uh, uh, volume of the space, um, uh, how much outdoor air do you have? What do you what is the efficiency of the filter, how much recirculated air, all of those sorts of things. So you can generate a, uh, an ECAI for the existing building. And then if that's short of what you need for, for the system that you're looking at or the space you're looking at, then you can start changing things as you develop uh, some options to, to see uh, what it takes to get there. And then you can compare them really outside the spreadsheet on the basis of how much is that going to cost how much is going to cost to operate? How much energy use does it? Uh, uh, how much does it change the energy use? So that's that's where you may have the interaction, I guess, between uh, 241 and energy use, I guess, in that regard. Although, as Max has mentioned, it's probably not substantial. It's pretty negligible in terms of uh, if you go into that IRMM mode, it's probably not a substantial energy uh, upgrade. So Max, you had something to say on this? Um, I, uh, not on the calculator itself, but okay. I think it's important to uh, keep in mind that for different kinds of buildings, the way you may want to comply is very different. For example, if you have a an office building and you can only increase the amount of um, ECA cheaply so much, you may decide that it makes sense to reduce the occupancy because you're gonna, so you're going to send some fraction of the of the people home. Whereas you can't do that in a residential section because that's where people are going to go when they get sent home. They're going to go home. And so you can't really reduce occupancy there, which is why you have to have uh, other means 
of improving the situation in a residential environment. So there's some differences depending on the occupancy category. And, and a lot of differences to, based on, on the kind of HVAC you have. If you have a dedicated outdoor air system with radiant panels, then the only airflow you've got is 100% outside air. And you can't put a filter in that system to remove anything that's generated in the space. So then you have to look at in the space solutions. If you have a variable air volume system, you may have six or seven times the airflow and most of it's recirculated. So they're putting uh, some kind of, of control into the central system may be effective. So that, that's why you can't really prescriptively specify the, the right solutions. You have to simply create requirements that can be adapted to whatever the conditions are in a given building. And one of the approaches that's really difficult at the moment and needs improvement is the uh, natural ventilation one. Uh, we, we allow for it, but we don't really describe very well how to do it because we couldn't figure that out. And, you know, a lot of buildings throughout the world are naturally ventilated. And so how you how you figure that out is something that needs more work in the standard. So basically, our, that brings up an interesting point. This this particular standard obviously is written for in general for what I would consider to be the developed countries as opposed to the developing countries. Do you see this as having a major impact in, in places where you have natural ventilation and now want to convert over to me mechanical, which seems to be happening in many parts of the world at the moment? Well, I don't think it's it's just a developing country sort of point of view. If you look at uh, Europe, for example, um, they use a lot of natural ventilation already, and I, I guess we'll count Europe as a developed part of the world. Yes, so, we will. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they use a lot of natural ventilation, and so they're going to have trouble figuring out exactly how, how to implement it. They may have trouble in natural ventilation for other reasons, too, as, as climate change makes uh, the demand for cooling uh, larger and larger, uh, the European countries have to account for that, which they many of them don't at the at the moment. As cities, uh, if the air quality in cities continues to be bad, natural ventilation in cities is is hard to deal with. So there are lots of issues um, involving natural ventilation, and they're not just in developing countries. And, and the, the cost of compliance would be a, a factor in some regions that were economically uh, developing. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Uh, but that right now, that's, shall we say, is not totally taken into account with regards to the 241. And certainly that'll be something in the future to take a look at in terms we, of- the, Yeah, cost effectiveness assessments and, and energy use assessments are really outside of, of what the standard covers now. We certainly expect those to be considerations that a user would would uh, apply, but but we don't say anything about how to do that in the standard. But we do try to enable as many different modes of compliance and many ways to get there as possible so that you can apply the ones that make the most sense in your situation. And yeah, so you know, we don't want to exclude natural ventilation sure. as an option, but we don't know how to do it quite right yet. There was an article, and I guess it was this, the September ASHRAE journal by, by Marwa Zatari and some some colleagues. And it's very interesting because they, they looked at it and it was six or, or so different ways of, of uh, complying with 241 for a school. And then they were specifically looking at uh, the difference between increasing outdoor air or um, applying uh, better filters, uh, MERV 7 to MERV 13. And also what happens if you use energy recovery and apply the indoor air quality procedure 
instead of the, the, the ventilation rate procedure to get the outdoor air requirement. That's something we should probably also mention that uh, we don't restrict the application of standard 62.1 to the prescriptive ventilation rate procedure. You can, you can use the uh, indoor air quality procedure, which was recently substantially updated, and that has the potential to allow you to reduce energy use quite a bit and still comply. Yeah, I've, I saw that article. That was an excellent article, and it does really address a lot of those interests uh, that people have in this area, how it's going to affect uh, uh, natural ventilation and uh, in other aspects of it. There was one, I think, in the October edition of the ASHRAE Journal uh, by Richard Burns, uh, who's a economist with, I think, Johns Hopkins. And he talked about the, ver the various ways you can comply with it and what will be the cost of complying with that. And also that should be noted that it's a, an excellent article that can talk about that particular aspect of this, of this issue. Yeah, he was looking at, I think, the, the overall cost effectiveness of, um, of applying the standard. And certainly that's there. We, we should mention that we're, we're trying to keep a, a kind of a regular feature going with uh, short columns in the ASHRAE journal that deal with different uh, dimensions of the standard as well as encouraging some longer articles to, to be written. So that's, that's one way that we're, we're trying to uh, educate interested people uh, about the standard and to, to get useful practical information out about it. So I'm running down to the last couple of questions here, Bill. I'll have you answer this one. Max, you can jump in at any time. Uh, is the only way for the new standard to be have that uh, to have impact as you wanted to is by adoption by authorities or is there other value to the standard? Well, it, I, I hope it's not the only way for it to have value. I think the fact that everyone's talking about it that's being discussed so much shows that it does have uh, value even outside of being adopted by code authorities. I, I think if we could get some big landlords to use it, you know, for example, the, the, the GSA, in the US would be an example. I, I think it would have a lot of impact. So I, I don't think that's necessary, although that's certainly something that we'd like to pursue. And code, yeah. co go ahead, Max. I, I would just augment that by saying code is one way to do it, but I don't actually see it as the most significant way because I think people want to do something. They want to have solutions to this problem and they will turn to this standard as ah, a solution for what I want. So I'm imagining that it will be done far more in a voluntary case than it will be in a regulatory case. I see. Um, one last question, uh, and this is really just a, a futuristic type question. What, what changes in Standard 241 do you anticipate will be considered by the, the, the committee in the next couple of years? Well, Sorry, certainly Matt. air distribution. Uh, distribution. Tell us a little bit more about that. You mentioned that previously, but I wasn't sure I, I, we, are, we got everything we needed to do out of that section. Tell us more about that. Well, we, we've had lots of discussions about how um, yeah, we, we know that, that air, airflow patterns in a space influence how effectively contaminants are removed. If you look at standard 62.1, we have breathing zone outdoor airflow rates in in table 6.1 that are, assume perfect mixing, which doesn't even actually happen. But then you, you go from there to uh, correcting those based on what kind of air distribution you actually have. Is it underfloor air distribution? Is it displacement? Is it um, overhead uh, with, with effective mixing or maybe ineffective 
mixing. So you, you apply a, a credit there. So we, we need that kind of information. And I think there's also a desire to put in more uh, requirements that relate to how you would use uh, in-room air cleaners. There was a lot of uh, concern about uh, an in-room air cleaner that has a fan disrupting stratified ventilation that was put there to improve the air quality in, in other ways. So I think those are some of the, the main things that uh, we need to work on there. And Max, you have the final word on this? Uh, well, as Bill mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, we need to do more work on the natural ventilation side right. uh, and, and the mixed mode, which means combining natural and mechanical. Uh, also, uh, we need probably to improve Appendix A a bit. It's a major step forward. But for example, the safety part of uh, Appendix A is limited only to a few things. And the things that we knew were the most important, but there are lots of uh, active uh, technologies potentially out there, uh, and we have and we haven't looked at them all in enough depth. What we'd actually like to happen is that standards writers do this, that they write test methods for particular technologies that include the safety, so we can just reference them. But uh, Appendix A is a fallback for all those things where there aren't standards. And I think perhaps it needs to be uh, upgraded a, uh, a little bit over time. Could you, could, could you just, uh, one last question I said, but I, I wanted to hit on that safety aspect. What, what, what is specifically, Max, are you talking uh, safety of the equipment, safety of the personnel? What, who is it? No, not, none of those things. No, okay. the fact that a, an active technology can produce products or byproducts, which themselves may oh, be okay. problematic. So, um, for example, track. UV light uh, on certain surfaces may uh, change uh, chemicals and induce a formation of things which are, are hazardous. Have we uh, dealt with that enough? Uh, technology can produce ozone. Uh, we have dealt with that by requiring UL2998, which is a, an ozone requirement. Uh, active technologies could convert one VOC to another. So we have a test method that charges it with limonene, a, a common cleaning compound, and looks for formaldehyde, the poster child of most VOC problems in inside homes. So we do have some of that. I'm thinking we probably don't have uh, enough yet, but that's an area that could use some development. Great. Thank you. All right. So, um, Bob, you have anything uh, further that you want to discuss? Well, this went too fast, I think, is what I would like to yes. mention. <laughs> I think there's so much more to discuss here. Um, so I, I, I would uh, say that we do need to bring these guests back and uh, continue this conversation because this is uh, uh, super important and uh, it's definitely going to be evolving. So. And it's very pertinent to the, the people I know who are in the industrial hygiene and health, health and safety yeah. area. They're, you know, there's a lot of discussion, but not a lot of, you know, yet uh, questions, shall we say, but they are being developed. And I can tell you, you're going to be getting a, quite a few of them at, at that level and as to how the people in the health and safety side of it are, are looking at this particular standard. So, Well, then let me give a little bit of a plug that at the uh, at meeting in ASHRAE this winter in Chicago, we're going to have a panel discussion with uh, a few of the greats from 241 sitting up front and fielding all the questions that uh, the audience wants to ask. So anybody who's attending that, I encourage them to come and uh, listen and or ask the question that concerns them. And, 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 for, and for those who like deep dives, there are going to be two three-hour short courses on yes. Tuesday of the conference. One in the morning is, is going to be uh, 
Marwa Zatari and myself, basically covering the, uh, the requirements parts of it. In the afternoon, we'll have uh, Wade Conlon and, and Megan McNulty doing implementation. So they're going to focus on how do you develop a building readiness plan. So there will be a lot of, of uh, educational material there for those who are eager to use the standard. Yeah, well, that's great. Uh, that's uh, fabulous. So I would say, um, Bill and Max, both kudos to you both uh, and the rest of your 241 committee just for being able to get this this really revolutionary document out, you know, and it's out in the world, which is, is fabulous in such a short order. Well, it was, it was very satisfying. It was a lot of hard work, but uh, we got it done and, and uh, we're, we're eager to keep developing it and, and uh, make it really the practically useful standard that uh, we've envisioned it to be. Excellent. So, Max, you gave us a kind of a preview of this panel, but you didn't mention any names. Anybody we would uh, would be interested in uh, knowing? Well, well, I'm going to chair it, and okay. Bill is one of the panel members. But okay. um, we have the leads from several of the working groups uh, ah, that, that are going to be there to talk about uh, air cleaning and implementation. And pretty much we have every topic uh, covered by the panel. So Sounds uh, great. I'm looking forward to it. Sounds real good. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much. Uh, Bob, you want to wrap it up? Yeah, like I always do. Uh, so anyway, thank you so very much for uh, watching this episode of the Indoor Environment Show. Again, uh, the show is uh, a product of the IEQGA, Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance, and in collaboration with Healthy Indoors Media. Uh, so we'll see you again next month. Uh, I'm not going to say same bat time, same bat channel, but sometime <laughs> around this. Actually, we tried. We this this worked out that you know we came on simultaneously with IEQ Radio, which we never do. This is the first time we've ever done this, and it was just a scheduling issue. But uh, we'll be back probably on our normal time and day. I'm assuming. Yes, we probably will. I'm but assuming. I don't know. You know, at this point, not, I can't not, tell you. Not definitely not on Thanksgiving, but uh, yeah, you yeah, definitely could, not. No, no. The gentleman could stay after he closes. We would appreciate it. So just stay for a second. Ed, Bob. Oh, okay. Well, we'll catch you next time. Uh, and for the next episode of Indoor Environments, take care.